trust me, I'm like a smart person. God, I am lost. Where am I? What number is that? Meters, you will arrive at your destination. I have overshot this thing three or four times now. It's really hard to find. I'm driving around bushland on the outskirts of Sydney, looking for what's officially known as the Australian Facility for Taphonomic Experimental Research, or AFTER. In books and movies, they'd call it a body farm. Hello. Hello. Am I in the right place? Yes, you are. I made it. Yay. Okay, thank you. Yes, I did drive back and forth a couple of times past the... The person I'm here to see is the University of Technology Sydney's Maiken Newland. My name is Maiken Newland, and I'm a Chancellor's Postdoctoral Research Fellow, and I'm also the Deputy Director of the AFTER facility. So the AFTER facility is a taphonomical research facility, uh, which is better known as a body farm. It's not our favourite term, but it's a term that people recognise a little bit more. And what we do is we study how the body is breaking down after death so that we can better answer questions such as when did a person die, how did a person die, and also we can give answers to a little bit more about how can we determine the identity of a person. Why don't you like the term body farm? Uh, It's not my favourite term because uh, I find it a little bit degrading towards our donors. It just reduces what we do a little bit. Uh, So taphonomic research facility is just a little bit more prestigious and more scientifically appropriate. One day earlier this year, I drove out to the after facility and spoke to Maiken Uhland and her PhD student Samara Garrett-Rickman about the research they're conducting there and how it's helping police solve real cases in real life. Now, I should warn you, this is not a true crime episode and Maiken was very clear she couldn't reveal any details about any cases she'd worked on. But she told me some really fascinating things about forensic science and the findings coming out of the after facility. High security prison fence. It also goes down half a meter into the ground. Yep. And has that barbed wire on top. And that's all to prevent anyone from gaining access. Are we talking people or animals that might dig as well? Both, yes. Yeah. So it's to prevent both from entering the facility. So there's no like secret science lab here or anything? No, no. secret science lab, no. <laughs> uh, we have possibility to store some samples on site uh, and then just a simple toilet and shower. Should we do a bit of a walk around or what do you want to do? So as you can tell, the AFTER Centre, which by the way is run for the Centre for Forensic Science and the Surgical and Anatomical Science Facilities at UTS, is super high security. I can't tell you where it is exactly, but I can tell you it's not easy to get to. But once we got there, here's basically what we saw. It's about 12 acres in area, surrounded by CCTV, very high security fencing, 
Access is very tightly restricted out of respect for those people who have donated their bodies to help researchers and police better understand how humans decompose in Australian bushland conditions. It was opened in 2016, and here is something that totally blew my mind. It is the only facility of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere. So I'm just going to let that sink in. Before we had this facility, there was nothing like it in this part of the world. And that means that for so long, most of the science that we had about how exactly bodies decompose in the bush was based on research from the Northern Hemisphere, where the weather is different, the climate is different, the bugs, the plants, the animals, the seasons, everything is completely different. So the research that's underway here is really important. It was based on uh, research done in the US on humans. Uh, but before that, we used pigs as human analogs because uh, they are considered the closest to human beings. Uh, and that's because they have the similar internal anatomy, they have similar bacteria inside them, and they also lack a heavy fur. And apart from that, everything else just relied on the casework. So what you would see from a case-to-case basis. We'll come back to after in a minute and I'll ask you a bit more about how it works. But just in the meantime, just tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, how did you get to be interested in this topic? I'm originally from Norway uh, and I used to play a lot outdoors and I was very, very interested in solving puzzles growing up. And then I found science, fell in love with it, and I realised how much good science could do. But I still had this very intriguing mind and I really liked the puzzle aspect. Uh, So I was able to combine both of them in forensic science. Uh, And then I also had this aspect of being outside, so I could never really have a desk job or a lab job. And forensic science and taphonomy just really combines all of those aspects. Can you tell me about some of the more interesting research findings, even if they're just preliminary ones that are starting to emerge from this facility? One of the most interesting findings for us was that we see a process called mummification, and that's where the body is becoming quite preserved. So rather than breaking down into what we call the very conventional stages, and that's how we usually classify how the decomposition progresses, we saw that it would stop decomposing and it would become preserved instead. And we call this a process of mummification, where the tissue would become quite dry and leathery, and it would look um, a lot fresher or less aged for a lot longer. So rather than coming down to that skeletonization where you'll see the bones being exposed, we would see mummified tissue happening. Uh, And this was very unique for us, and we'd never seen it with the pigs, which is what we were using in the past. And so just to clarify, this mummification doesn't happen at the facilities that exist in the US. Are you saying this is sort of a somewhat unique to Australian conditions or...? It is. Uh, There's been a couple cases uh, in the US where they've seen mummification or in certain scenarios you'll see it. But what we find is that we see mummification across all seasons and in a lot of different scenarios. And why? We, uh, We don't know. At this stage, we still don't know. So we're doing a lot of research into trying to figure out why this is happening. Uh, Because we need to know, because this is going to affect how we determine time since death. So how long someone has been deceased for. What are the stages of decomposition as we thought we understood them? The stages of decomposition uh, are five broad categories uh, that are used to to visually characterise decomposition. And they are the fresh stage, so that is immediately following death. 
uh, where the individual will look as what they look like in life. And then we have the bloat stage. So this is when you have breakdown of macromolecules, fats and proteins, they'll break down into smaller constituents and that will cause the gases to be released and the abdomen will become distended. Uh, and then the abdomen will rupture and we have something called active decay. And this is the stage where you have the most amount of insect activity and usually the most amount of that odor that we associate with decomposition. Uh, and this is where you'll have most of that soft tissue being lost. Uh, and then once most of that soft tissue has been uh, removed, we go into what we call advanced decay. And following advanced decay, we have skeletonized or dry remains, which is the final stage. Mm -hmm. And so what you're finding through this research is that decomposition of human remains in the Australian bush is not necessarily following such a set um, process. It's more that we're seeing a lot of differential decomposition. So we'll see multiple stages at one single time. Whereas with the pigs, it was a lot more clear cut. You would see a pig in active decay and it was easy to classify. Whereas the humans will see multiple stages at one time. Tell me about this weather station thing. So we have a weather station to monitor the environment at the site because it is such an important factor for us. Uh, so we measure the temperature, the rainfall, the humidity, uh, the wind speed and wind gust. Uh, so that's what this large contraption does. I would imagine that temperature and humidity would be a huge factor, but even wind speed? Uh, we measure it because we do a lot of research on the odour. Uh, so sometimes that can help us explain why we're not getting odor on a particular windy day, for example. Into a bit of the, the wind situation. I should make it clear that when I did go to the site, I wasn't allowed to see any donor bodies. They're really protective of the donors and they certainly don't let journalists just randomly roam around the facility. But I can tell you what I did see. One of the first things we came across was a pile of rubble where Maiken told me they had conducted a simulation aimed at working out what kinds of factors are involved when a body is in a collapsed building site, for example. Do you have any preliminary findings from the simulation? Uh, we saw a lot of what we call differential decomposition. Uh, and something else we saw was that we could see differences between how a body was decomposing depending on where the donor was located, uh, which was really interesting to us. What do you mean, depending on where? Uh, so depending on whether a donor was in a certain part of the building debris, it would decompose differently to a donor that might be deeper in a rubble uh, than a donor that might be on the outskirts of okay. the rubble. Okay. And, um, and those sorts of findings would be applicable in what sorts of scenarios? Uh, they're going to be really important for first responders uh, and for anyone that needs to collect evidence or for identification purposes uh, so that investigators know what to expect and what type of evidence we can get from the donors. Uh, what we want to do is we want to find better ways of recovering the victims. Uh, first find anyone that might still be alive 
uh, because that's always going to be the number one priority. Uh, but second to that, uh, we want to find any victims that might be deceased because it's equally important to identify them uh, and get any information we can about what's happened in that situation so that we can provide answers to law enforcement, but also that, so that we can provide information to families who are anxiously waiting to see whether their loved one was involved in this. And so mass disasters such as what? Uh, such as uh, it could be natural, uh, it could be floodings or it could be earthquakes, uh, it could be man-made disasters, uh, it could be a plane crash, deliberate plane crash or, or building explosion. Uh, right. So there's no donors that we can see here. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit of pink tape off in the distance and that's where we have some graves. Okay. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, we don't have anything that's visible from our demountable or from any of the fence locations and that is to protect our donors. Yeah. Uh, but we do have some graves over in that fenced area <laughs> there. So anywhere you'll see pink. Uh, we have some grave scenarios. Okay. So what I can see is a bunch of trees, sort of some tape tied to the trees, kind of creating a bit of a perimeter around them. And you can see different markings off in the distance, like little orange flags and signs. And I, I don't know if those are sort of, are they some sort of electronic measuring meter thing over there that I... Yeah, we have some uh, temperature and moisture sensors. Uh, so in, we have our local weather station that measures uh, a whole range of different variables. Uh, but we also have very localized temperature and moisture sensors. So these would be inside graves or right next to an individual donor okay. to get very, very specific data. Okay. All right. So in this place here that we're not going to walk into, uh, is there a range of, as you sort of said before, you know, some clandestine graves, some shallow, some deeper? Like what, what would you see in there if you went in there? Uh, so this is our, our mass grave scenario. So we have six different graves in what you can see here, uh, where we have three are just control graves. So they're just dug up and then they're backfilled and they're completely empty. Uh, and then we have three that have donors in them. Uh, and there are experimental graves. Uh, and they have uh, six donors and three donors and then a single grave as a comparison. Okay. And that control is there to sort of work out to what extent the changes that you see in the environment might be due to the sort of the excavation in the first place uh, as opposed to the actual decomposition, right? Yeah, so the control grave are there uh, to check if any changes that we do, any disturbances to the ground are just from us simply digging up and then backfilling. Uh, because if you have a, a glance over in that closest little dip there, you can see that you have a little bit of an indentation. Uh, so even though we haven't put anything in that grave, you're still going to have a bit of an indication that something has happened in that area. And that's because we've turned the soil around, uh, which would be something that police would look for when they look for a clandestine grave, they look for disturbances in the soil. Uh, but what we want to look at is, are the disturbances going to be different between the one that has nothing in it and the one that has a body? But what do you think police investigators might see when they look at a site like this? What sorts of things are they looking for? So they would look for differences in soil colour, they would look for differences in the vegetation. 
So there would be certain patches here where there's no growth or there'll be a lot more vegetation growth. Both of those are indicators that there's something different. So just anywhere where the soil or the vegetation does not look like what it does just a couple meters nearby. I mean, if it was easy to find <laughs> a clandestine grave, then uh, you'd be out of a job. So I, I know it's, I presume it's not easy, right? Uh, it's not always easy. Uh, some instances, if you, for example, have uh, a, a big mound. So that means that they've, the perpetrator has put a lot of soil on the top uh, and you have that raised part. Uh, that's a bit easier to find uh, or if someone's put a lot of rocks on top uh, or made, just made it really obvious uh, but in most cases it's not. Uh, it's not very obvious uh, and it takes uh, a lot of practice uh, and it takes a lot of investigative training. Are there any pigs here today or any other animals apart or just the, the human donors? We only have humans on site here, uh, and that's uh, to keep with our regulations. So whenever we do anything with pigs, uh, which we still do for certain aspects of the research, uh, we have to do that outside of the fence or on other areas of the property. Uh, so we have motion sensor cameras, uh, and we have some infrared cameras, and then we also have time-lapse cameras. And what are they looking for? Uh, so they're looking for any changes, movement of the ground. Uh, and also looking at heat signals that might come from the ground as the bodies are decomposing. Uh, and the time-lapse cameras are simply looking at the vegetation as it changes. And what's the function of studying a, you know, a donor body that might be on the surface? Because I'm guessing wouldn't you know, a perpetrator try to bury a body or hide a body? What's the purpose of doing those surface studies? It's actually a lot harder to bury a body than, than most people think. Uh, so a lot of individuals are actually found on the surface. Uh, also, having a body on the surface makes it a lot easier for the researcher to look at what's happening. Uh, so in terms of any visual changes or just the purpose of taking samples on a daily basis, uh, it's easier to do it on a donor that's on the surface. Do you put the bodies in at different times of the year so you can see it throughout different seasons at different stages of de decomposition or? Exactly, so we tried to, to put donors out at any time throughout the year uh, because we know that the decomposition is gonna progress slightly different depending on what season they're put out. But do the neighbors know what's here? I mean, they must, right? They do, yeah, they do know that it's here. Yeah. What's that sort of yellow marker over there? Is that just indicating it's got a little fence around it? Uh, that's just an indicator for one of our ground penetrating radars, uh, which looks at changes again in the soil, so underneath. Uh, and that's just a, a marker to see where to stop and start the run. What sorts of changes in soil? Are you looking at sort of the pH? The, you know, what other factors might you be considering there? Uh, so with the ground penetrating radar, it looks more for disturbances in the soil. So what it's doing, it's, a, it's an instrument that you... Uh, it looks a bit like, like a trolley uh, that you would drive over the soil uh, and then it sends a signal down into the soil that bounces back uh, and it tells you if there's any disturbances in the soil. Uh, and what we're doing is we're just testing it out here to see if it's able to pick up any of the donors that are buried. So it could pick up a tree root, uh, a leaking pipe, so it's not 
specifically to bodies, but it is being used to find remains. It's one of the tools. What sort of changes might happen in the soil as decomposition progresses? pH is is one indicator where we can see a change in pH um, and also just uh, a change in moisture. uh, And that's when the body is releasing that decomposition fluid. Uh, It can cause an increase in the moisture. So Mm -hmm. that's why we have moisture sensors in all of the graves. And also temperature is something else that can change. In our interview the other day, you mentioned that, you know, as a body decomposes, it does release that gas and um, and that rupturing can occur. As that expansion happens, does that cause the soil to kind of come up? It does. Uh, so you'll be able to see uh, with one of the graves here, uh, it has what we call a depression. Uh, so that's happened for two reasons. So when you backfill a grave, that causes a depression. So you'll see that there is a bit of a gap between the surface and and down to the bottom uh, where the grave is. And that's another grave indicator. And then, as you mentioned, when the body goes through that bloat stage, uh, you have the soil will move a little bit up. And then when the body deflates, you'll have what we call a second depression. So you'll see a second little area in that soil where you might have a further indentation. And what do you typically see in terms of the changes in the vegetation? Uh, so it depends on on the grave but you'll see that the vegetation uh, will be uh, pretty much non-existent at the first when you dig the grave and that's just because there's been too much overturning of the soil uh, but then you'll see some of that species and you might see other species uh, come back Uh, and start to grow and then depending on what type of grave how deep it is or how shallow it is uh, you might see a lusher uh, growth. The other day when we were talking about that process of mummification would that have any effect on the look of a grave from the outside or does it um, is it something that you would only really know if you were studying the body that was out in the open? At this stage we have never um, excavated any of our donors that are buried so we don't know how the mummification is going to affect that burial side of it. Uh, So we only know that we're seeing it on our surface donors. I noticed that you say our donors, you know, you don't say, I mean, you know, here am I saying words like the bodies and stuff, but you use our donors, which to me is a much more like human and personable term. Well, to me, they are. Uh, Every single donor that comes out here, I feel, have given a gift to us. Uh, In one way, they they are. They're part of our taphonomy family. Yeah. Do you think you'll donate your body to science? Yes, I will. Okay. You answered that very quickly. You seem very sure. Tell me why. Because uh, I think it's a, it's a really great thing to do. Uh, and just from speaking to other people that I know will donate their body, it just it's a great sense of purpose. So when a donor donates their body and they've done all their paperwork and informed their family and they've passed away... What what's the exact process? Their body goes to the morgue, or does it come straight to here, or does it get picked up by the funeral service, or how does that? What usually happens? Just for somebody who's listening, who's thinking, I might want to do that, but I I just be interested to know. Uh, so it comes through to UTS first, uh, where they just go through a little bit of testing, uh, and then it comes out here, and that's the funeral director will transport them here. So there's no funeral okay. uh, when the body is donated, but we do have an annual memorial service for all of our donors. Hmm. What happens with that? Uh, we have a memorial garden. Uh, every year we have uh, a memorial service just to thank and remember 
all of the donors and to thank all of their families. Or the sort of results you're getting here, are they already being used in police work in Australia? Uh, we have been able to assist in, in some police case work, uh, which is just absolutely fantastic for us. I mean, in Australia, would this be the sort of environment where you would typically find a clandestine grave or a body? I mean, uh, A lot of the cases that, that we've been involved in have been exactly in an environment like this. A very typical Sydney native bushland. Yep. I mean, mentioning Sydney, how applicable would be the findings that you could glean from this research to, you know, casework in, you know, far north Queensland or, uh, you know, ice cold Tasmania? The simple answer is that we don't know uh, until we've done the research of those temperatures. Uh, but we do know that in some areas there will be a similar applicability. Uh, and what we do uh, is when we do have casework, we ask for the local weather data uh, and then we base all our information on that. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, so if we can get local data that's always the best option uh, and that was one of the biggest reasons as to why we wanted to have such a facility in Australia rather than use data from the US. Hi, we have somebody who's just arrived. This Hello. Is Samara. Hey Samara, Hi. I'm Sunny. That's what you do. It was at about this moment that Mikan's PhD student arrived at the after facility. My name is Mara Garrett-Rickman and I'm a PhD candidate at UTS. Um, so my PhD is looking at um, comparing the decomposition rates of um, human bodies to the rate of decomposition of DNA within their bodies um, and seeing if we can use that as a measure to determine how long someone's been dead for. So just to get my head around that. Just explain that to me like I'm a child. <laughs> um, so DNA exists within the cells in the body and there's multiple different types of DNA as well. So you can have your nuclear DNA and then also things like mitochondrial DNA, which you have a lot more of. Um, so those two things can degrade at different rates depending on where the breaks in the DNA are going to happen and then also depending on um, things like climate, um, environment, um, entomological activity, uh, mass of um, a person, a whole host of things. So it's just trying to see if we can establish any patterns that relate that decomposition rate of the DNA to the decomposition of the humans. And how does that help in the context of um, an investigation? Yeah, so um, currently it's really difficult to determine how long somebody's been passed away for. Um, there's been a lot of research into other areas like the entomology, like I said, trying to establish the cycles of insects. And then also um, when you get into your more ancient remains, you can also do carbon dating and things like that. But that period in between is, is really a bit of a question mark. So you can get ranges between 20 days up until 80 days or something like that, which in terms of casework is not... Um, accurate enough to really, um, particularly if you don't have any leads in an investigation, to, to give you some more information and some more context behind it. The aim of my research is to narrow that down and to really be able to provide that information to police and investigators so that they can eventually either identify someone or return people to their loved ones. Mm. Um, and because of the nature of um, the facility here um, at AFTER, my study is one of the first of its kind because we've never really had the capacity to do these types of studies on human donors before, which means that the research itself is really in its infancy. Yeah. What does that actually look like for you when you come to this facility? What are you normally doing? 
Um, so when we come out here, generally when you um, leave past these demountables, past this point, um, you have to be suited up in something we call a Tyvek suit. So um, we do wear PPE to protect ourselves. Um, we have to chuck on our boots, get all of our kit ready. So for me, I've got um, a little box labelled field kit, which has everything that I use every single time. Um, then I have um, my to label my tubes for when I go out to the field site. Um, and then um, chuck all that in a bucket and then uh, traipse out to the, the middle of the field site where our donors are. Um, when we come out here, we can't come alone. We have to come in pairs um, just in case anything happens. Um, and of course, a lot of our work involves heavy lifting. Um, so uh, with the both of us generally, we'll, um, we put protective cages over our donors. So remove the cages um, and then take photographs so that we can keep track of all of the different changes that are happening. Um, and then after this, I um, take my samples, put those in the tubes, bring them back here, put them in that freezer that's labeled no food and drink. <laughs> um, and then um, clean up and go back to, to the uni, okay. yeah. And then you take those samples back to a lab? Or? Uh, yeah, so um, the nature of my samples in particular is, is um, I freeze them as quick as possible um, so that they don't degrade because I'm measuring that degradation. Um, and then I actually have to bring dry ice out from the university so that I can bring them back without them um, thawing on the way. But mm -hmm. yeah, so I usually wait till I have a few ready to go and then I take them back in one big lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you say samples, are these samples like from the donors? Um, so my particular project, um, because I am looking at the DNA, I'm sampling uh, muscle tissue. Um, so I'm using uh, a medical technique with a core biopsy needle to, to collect some of that muscle, muscle tissue. Yeah. And that PPE suit, can you just describe what that looks like? Um, it looks a lot like a spacesuit. <laughs> um, actually, that's probably one of the things that they get right on TV is, is the white suits that you, you get geared up in. Yeah. One thing that I've discovered from talking to the, you guys who run this facility is that we know less about like determining the you know, time of death or how to find perpetrators than I think most people would think we yeah. know. You know, you watch shows like NCIS and you think, oh, they'll just find the bad guy using science. I think it's quite funny. It's, it's actually a, a well-known phenomenon within the forensic world. It's called the CSI effect. But yeah, like I was sitting watching one of those programs with my mother the other day and she said, they can, they can do it so accurately. What are, you, what are you doing? I'm like, you're right. All of this time spent doing this research and they can already do it on the television. What am I doing? Um, but yeah, unfortunately, it does, it does create a lot of misunderstanding for, um, uh, I guess, the public in terms of what is possible. So if they ever do, unfortunately, find themselves in the situation where they are needing our services, um, a lot of pressure is put onto the, the forensic industry in order to produce results that we can't, we can't quite get yet. Um, and of course, funding is a huge thing in terms of research and trying to progress to the point where we're able to provide these services that people are expecting. If we can, you know, put more funding into this research that's going on, then these things will happen a lot quicker. Mm. Any other myths that you'd like to bust about <laughs> forensic science? Um, we don't do everything. That's my other favourite one is that you see on TV the people, you know, they, they'll be in the lab doing the testing then they'll be like, right, found him. Got to go, got to go grab my gun, go out in the street and catch the bad guy. But uh, um, that, that really doesn't happen. That's probably the job of probably what, like 20 people on the TV. So, yeah, we're really quite specialised in, in what we do. It is actually a little bit unsettling to think how hard it is to solve a crime using forensic science. I guess what I'm realising is that science 
is not magic. Yeah, no, it's definitely not as black and white as people people wish it was. But um, yeah. oh, well, usually there's a, a lot of different circumstances around the case, so we do often see that cases are eventually solved, even if uh, it is challenging. Uh, often with the signs, uh, there are enough circumstances around that we do often see that convictions are made. Mm. And probably more than ever, really, because we now have more science than ever before to help contribute to the investigations that may one day solve them. We do. And there's so many different areas now. So there's so many different pools of information that can help assist. If you're thinking about donating your body to the AFTER facility to help researchers unpack the mysteries that may one day help law enforcement solve a case, please go to the UTS Body Donation Program website. You can find that just by Googling body donation and UTS. Mikan told me that the typical donor profile is an older Caucasian male. So particularly if you're someone who falls outside of that description, I'm sure they'd love to hear from you. The number to call is 02 9514 or send an email to body.donation at uts.edu.au. And we're going to be coming back to this topic in a future episode of Trust Me, I'm an Expert, where I spoke to the University of Wollongong's James Wallman. He's an expert on insects and forensic science and the little clues that bugs can leave us about what happened, when and how. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation, where we ask the academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. My name again is Sananda Cray. Special thanks today to Mike and Orland and Samara Garrett-Rickman and to UTS for allowing us to visit the AFTER facility. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and you can see a full list of credits on our website at theconversation.com.